on the cold evening of Friday, January 22nd, 2010, in Brooklyn, New York, seven-year-old Patrick Alford Jr. was accompanying his foster mother to the trash chute in their high-rise Brooklyn apartment. An odd call came in at the most inconvenient time. It caused a distraction, then Patrick was gone. He was gone without a trace. One may think, and now, 13 years without any answers, but a lead that expands from just in his community to extending as far as Puerto Rico. A nearly 14-year mystery that plagues Starrett City. A case that's cold, with over a decade of unanswered questions and mystery that makes you question those around him, those who knew him, or what he ran to instead of running from. Patrick was experiencing some issues in the home that fell on deaf ears with CPS. I know what you're thinking. His foster mother. She was cleared of any involvement. His biological mother was cleared. And now, we're left with possibilities. His scent was traced. Then, it just stopped. So what happened to seven-year-old Patrick on the late evening of Friday, January 22nd, 2010? Was someone watching or did he run? If he ran, what made him run? Law enforcement conducted a massive search for Patrick, but was there one detail missed? If he ran, what made him run? If he ran in 2010, it doesn't mean he is safe today. This is the Missing Found Podcast. I'm your host, Jaden Harlow. Before we get into the case, I have a few details to share about the show. The Missing Found is an investigative true crime podcast focusing mainly on unsolved missing person cases in the Black community. The cases that I cover have either gone cold, have little to no media coverage, or have gone without conclusion. You can follow the show on Instagram at The Missing Found or on Medium at The Missing Found to read our original script. I also would like to mention that we have a case suggestion form in the show notes or description box that you can complete to submit your case suggestions that are of the Black and Missing. We have a Patreon that's now available for you to become a member in our private community to discuss cases deeper beyond our case analyses through private discussions with me, ad-free episodes, gain complimentary access to our original script, early releases, bonus content, and much more that's exclusive for members only. The show is now available on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. You can access all things of The Missing Found through our website at themissingfound.com. I ask that you please like, share, subscribe, and comment to share your thoughts on this case. This is case episode 17, The Disappearance of Patrick Alfred Jr. Today we're analyzing the disappearance of Patrick Alfred Jr. Patrick went missing in Brooklyn, New York. A case like this, you will soon learn that it's either one of two things. He ran or someone abducted him. You will soon find my angle on this case and why I think this case is all what it may seem a family secret, or happenstance. I believe someone saw something, and they know something. 
we're going to offer a fresh look at the case details and examine what has been publicly shared, retrace Patrick's last moments on record, break down every element, analyze those intricate details, then close with my opinion. This case is a puzzle. It's hard to put it together when you're missing some of the pieces. We know that a case is only as good as its witnesses. Sometimes things are what they seem, and sometimes they are what they are. See what I did there? What can you do when the system that was supposed to protect your child failed? They paid for it, yes. But where's Patrick? So who was Patrick Alfred Jr.? Patrick Kennedy Alfred Jr. was born on November 28, 2002, in New York to his mother, Jennifer Rodriguez, and his father, Patrick Alfred Sr. Patrick is the eldest of his two younger sisters. One of his sisters, Jaylene, was born in April 2005 and was only four years old when Patrick went missing. According to some reports, it was said that there was another younger sister, but she is not mentioned in this case nor the court documents. As of right now, I'm unclear where the other sister stands or where she stood in 2010. In an interview with Vanished, Jennifer described Patrick as being a smart little guy. He was funny and always was a great and attentive big brother to his baby sisters. Before we go any further, I want to introduce you to a few names that will be mentioned throughout the case. Jennifer Rodriguez, Patrick's mother, Patrick Alfred Sr., Patrick's father, Jaylene Alfred, Patrick's four-year-old sister, Blanca Toledo, Jennifer's aunt, Patrick's great-aunt, Sharima Brewington, Patrick Sr.'s girlfriend, Natalia Rosado, CPS specialist, Labrada Moran, foster mother. Patrick was born to his mother when she was just a teen, and three years later, Jaylene was born. Jennifer had her share of adversity as a child. She came from a complicated situation. Her mother had a history of drug use and her father died at the age of 34 when she was only eight. As a result of this, she suffered from depression, which she later transitioned to routine drug use. Even though Jennifer had her own substance abuse issues and depression, she wanted to give her children something different than what she had growing up. She kept up a routine with her children by making sure she would cook for them, take them to the park, keep them active, and take them to school. She made sure to keep her babies busy. Still, she had her share of unresolved trauma and experiences with heavy drug use, which, as a result, she made a phone call that she thought would be the best decision for her babies, which ultimately turned into 13 years of unanswered questions. Loss? And mystery. The case details. In order for you to understand the case, we have to go back some to understand what led to the phone call and where we stand today. The downward spiral. On the day after Christmas, December 26, 2009, Jennifer, Jaylene, Patrick Jr., and a relative went to a store. Now, this store trip turned bad because Jennifer and the relative she was with were shoplifting, got caught, and was arrested. As a result, law enforcement advised Jennifer to call a family member to pick up her children since she was being arrested. She ended up calling her mother to pick up the children. Both Jaylene and Patrick were now both in her custody. 
The only thing wrong with this was that Jennifer's mother has several, 11 to be exact, priors, deeming her unfit to be a guardian of the children in a high concern for their safety. The Administration for Child Services, or ACS, received the report from the state central registry notifying them of the arrest. This was a situation that was on decline because just a few months prior, in September 2009, ACS got involved because both Jennifer and her boyfriend had got into a physical altercation while both Jaylene and Patrick were present. At this time, with the arrest for shoplifting, this would be two strikes for Jennifer and ACS getting involved. Due to Jennifer's downward spiral, her mental stability was in question. A child protective specialist, Natalia Rosado, was advised by her supervisor, Robert Salami, to take a visit to Jennifer's residence to speak with her about the recent arrest. Natalia asked Jennifer if she was experiencing any issues regarding her mental health, but Jennifer quickly refuted that claim. However, the statement was deemed to be untrue because Natalia was aware that Jennifer was prescribed and taking psychotropic medication. medication. The call that changed everything. On the following day, things began to take a final turn. This turn was ultimately the best and worst decision Jennifer could make. The decision had the best intentions, but it resulted into the worst. Jennifer contacted CPS, while high, to request assistance with getting placed in an inpatient drug treatment program for her marijuana usage. Sadly, she was told that marijuana usage does not warrant admittance into an inpatient program. Soon after, Jennifer revealed that she was actually using PCP in her home. PCP, often called angel dust, is an illegal street drug that is categorized as a hallucinogen. Users of the drug experience compulsive behaviors, psychological experiences, through extreme mind-altering instances and creating a distortion of one's reality. It is a severely dangerous and highly addictive drug. Immediately, CPS quickly arrived at her home to retrieve the children. When they arrived, they found a man who refused to identify himself and Jennifer in an impaired state where she could not stand nor speak much. In the midst of this, four-year-old Jaylene was present, but seven-year-old Patrick was not. In fact, they at first did not know where Patrick was due to Jennifer being heavily under the influence of the drug. Jennifer, while in her impaired state, was able to verbally communicate that he was at an aunt's home. She just couldn't give the name of the aunt. After doing some digging, CPS found that Patrick was at a great aunt's home in Brooklyn. Blanca Toledo, the great aunt to Patrick and Jaylene, occupied a home where several other adults lived. Blanca did not have legal custody of Patrick and CPS removed him from the home due to her home not being formally cleared by officials to deem it safe for the children. CPS has protocols to complete background checks that involve checking the backgrounds of family members that live in the home, check for domestic abuse, and other ACS cases from any of the occupants. On December 29th, both Jaylene and Patrick were taken to the office in Manhattan to await placement. A foster home was located in Brooklyn, but they wanted to find a home that was in the borough in which the children were familiar with, Staten Island. However, none was available. The placement was made official with the foster mother at 11 p.m. on that evening of December 29th. On the next day, December 30th, the children were placed in a non-kinship foster home belonging to Labrada Moran at 130 Vendelia Avenue on the 11th floor. 
Building D2 at Spring Creek Towers, an East New York complex made up of 46 apartment buildings. On the same day of the foster placement, Jennifer and Patrick Sr. had a hearing, which was the initial child safety conference, to discuss kinship placement. Jennifer made mention to Patrick Sr. during the conference, in private, that Blanca's husband actually had molested her when she was a child and expressed her discomfort of the children being placed with Blanca in a kinship foster home. Though discussed in private, it got back to the officials at the hearing. This claim was alleged and further investigation was necessary to support this claim. What was supposed to be a temporary situation? The children staying in foster care with Labrada was supposed to be temporary. It was a temporary situation, but it quickly turned into a nightmare for Patrick. He just didn't want to be there. It became extremely overwhelming for him, and he simply just was unhappy being apart from his mother. The goal, from what we've read in the court documents, was to place the children with family, preferably their father, Patrick Sr. However, he was involved in a physical altercation with his girlfriend and mother of his other children, Sharima Brewington. After appearing in family court, they decided that the children should be under the custody of Patrick Sr. It's not clear why they resulted to this decision with his record and living situation, but he was deemed more fit. The court did have some concerns with Patrick Sr. He had the domestic violence incident with Sharima, and the shelter he was living in may not have been able to accommodate two additional children. Jennifer also raised a concern about a previous situation where Sharima had actually hit Patrick and locked him inside of a closet. Now, this allegation prevented Patrick Sr. from taking custody of his children at that time. ACS needed time to investigate this allegation before a final decision is made. The next hearing was set for January 26, 2010. Sadly, this hearing would be less about custody and more about a missing seven-year-old. A distraction that lasted 13 years. On Friday, January 22nd, at around 9 p.m., Patrick was assisting his foster mother, Labrata, take out the trash. His little sister, Jaylene, was present. It's not clear she was supposed to walk with them to the trash chute or stay in the apartment until they return. As far as we know, the plan was to take the trash to the trash chute and go back to the apartment alongside Labrata. And somehow, the plan changed. An incoming call that could not have came at a worse time had rang to Labrata's cell phone. A call came in just seconds after they left out of her 11th floor apartment unit. Labrada became distracted, turned around, went back into the apartment to answer the phone. Then Patrick continued walking in the hallway on his own. At this time, Patrick was out of sight. Moments after, Jaylene stood in the doorway, looked down the hall. She didn't see Patrick. She yelled his name, but there was no response. Patrick vanished. And this is where things go dark. Patrick was nowhere in sight. He was gone. The timeline. Before we discuss the search efforts and break down the case elements, I want to give you a timeline from what I've gathered from court documents and what has been shared by media and law enforcement. September 2009. Jennifer and her boyfriend had a physical altercation in front of Patrick and Jaylene. This led to an incident report and she was first made known to ACS. A few months later, on December 26, 
Jennifer and a relative were caught shoplifting. Both Patrick and Jaylene were present. Jennifer and the unidentified relative were both arrested and a relative had to be called to pick up Patrick and Jaylene. Jennifer called her mother and she retrieved the children. On that same day, at 5.40 p.m., ACS received notice about her arrest from the state central registry. On December 28th, an ACS specialist went to Jennifer's home to speak with her. Jennifer confessed about the shoplifting arrest and made mention of another arrest that she failed to report to ACS. On December 29th, Jennifer called the ACS headquarters to get assistance with checking herself into an inpatient drug treatment program for her marijuana usage. She later revealed that she was actually using PCP in her home. Sometime after 5 p.m., ACS specialists arrived to her home and found Jennifer in an impaired state. She could barely speak. The specialist reported back to their manager, and he authorized an emergency removal of the children due to her being incapable of caring for her children. The children were brought back to the office for foster home placement. At around 11 p.m. that same day, a temporary foster home was found with Labrada Moran. On December 30th, the children were taken to Labrada's home in the morning. A few hours later, Jennifer and Patrick attended a hearing, the initial child safety conference. Later that day, they attended family court for a more formal hearing. On January 6, 2010, Jennifer and Patrick Sr. again appeared in family court. This appearance was discussing the possibility of placing the children in Patrick Sr.'s custody. Just two days later, on January 8th, Jennifer, her sister, and Aunt Blanca went for a supervised visit at St. Vincent's to see Patrick. Patrick was inconsolable and said that he wanted to leave with his mother and kept trying to leave the office on his own. On January 14th, a psychologist at St. Vincent's performed an initial evaluation due to his behavioral concerns. On January 21st, there was another visit with Patrick. He kept trying to unlock the door and leave Labrada's apartment. On January 22nd, Patrick goes missing. The search. According to Sergeant Kate Dawson of the NYPD Missing Persons Unit, she said police arrived 30 minutes after the foster mother discovered he was missing. The next morning, an investigator went to Jennifer's home in Staten Island to notify her of her missing son, see if she had information or possible involvement with Patrick's disappearance. As you could imagine, Jennifer was at a loss for words and in complete shock regarding this news. A search was conducted, starting from searching the grounds of the Spring Creek Towers apartment complex. Vacant parking lots, aviation was brought in to search rooftops, trash compactors, elevator shafts, and shopping centers in the area to see if there was any footage. The investigation for Patrick was massive. NYPD said to have interviewed over 14,000 people, including family members. 200 buildings were searched, and they knocked on 9,000 doors near his foster home on Vandalia Avenue and his biological mother's Staten Island home. Still nothing. The search led them to nearby parks and water sources, and nothing of Patrick ever materialized. Initially, they thought his mother was responsible for his disappearance. Because of this, they arrested Jennifer a week later, and she was questioned heavily and given a polygraph test which she passed. Family members were also brought in for questioning to see if there was a connection or any information that can lead to Patrick. 
there was a development in the case. When canine units were brought into the initial search, they traced Patrick's scent to a nearby bus stop, only steps away from the D2 building, the building in which he was staying in. The bus stop was on the corner of Pennsylvania and Vandalia Avenue, a short walk away from the apartment building he was fostered in, 130 Vandalia Avenue. His scent stopped there. This is where the case takes a pause. We just simply don't have any other information regarding his whereabouts or much of what happened after. Only speculation. Now, let's pick this case apart. The case elements break down. Labrada Moran, the foster mother. Labrada was 58 years old at the time she took in Patrick and Jaylene. There are not many public details on Labrada, and I want to be mindful of her privacy. While both Jaylene and Patrick were in custody, there were some issues. In fact, there were many issues. But there was one that caused lack of the most basic necessity. Communication. Which should have required immediate action from ACS. Labrada spoke very little English. She only spoke Spanish. The children could not speak Spanish, nor did they understand it. Patrick just did not want to be there. There were times when both him and Labrada would clash. It has not been stated exactly what those episodes entailed. As you can imagine, this became a challenging experience for both Jaylene and Patrick. During a visitation, Patrick informed his mother about the language barrier, and it was brought to the attention of ACS, which they had to already know about and should have warranted immediate removal. There were multiple visits where Patrick expressed his feelings about being in the home. It's not clear if there was anything specific or if he just did not want to be in a foreign environment, especially with someone who did not speak the same language as him. Patrick's emotional break. As we can imagine, Patrick was dealing with a lot. He was overwhelmed with change and under extreme emotional distress from being in a foreign environment that was evident he was uncomfortable in. One day he was with his mother and family. Then the next day his life changed and he and his sister were placed in foster care. This is something, no matter the circumstances, that no child would want. Most children at that age want to be near their mother. Patrick loved his mother and father regardless of the situation. He was removed from the home for a good reason, since there was drug use present in Jennifer's home, and that is not an environment for children. But at what cost? While in the custody of his foster mother, he demonstrated some emotional and behavioral concerns. According to the court documents, Labrada reported how Patrick would hit the other children, smear feces on the wall, hit himself in the head, and threaten to harm his sister. There was a supervised visit that Jennifer... Her sister and Blanca attended at St. Vincent's Hospital, now defunct, and Patrick kept trying to leave the office, would throw a chair, said that he was leaving with his mother, and repeated that he wanted to go home. On a January 21st visit, 24 hours before he went missing, Patrick kept trying to unlock the door and leave. During that same visit, he said he wished he were dead and attempted to cut himself with scissors. Patrick was evaluated by a psychologist, Dr. Plotnick, at St. Vincent's on January 14th. There was a treatment note that discussed Patrick's difficulty concentrating, lying, violent outburst, and that he once again wanted to harm his sister. Dr. Plotnick felt some of his behavior may have been exaggerated, but also stated that he needed urgent attention for a psychiatric evaluation 
and treatment intervention. This behavior gives you insight of Patrick's mind frame of weeks to hours before his disappearance. I also want to make it clear that I don't believe Patrick's experience is from mental health concerns. I believe it was based on the mere fact that he was stuck in an environment that he simply was uncomfortable in and did not want to be there. A child removed from their parent and family just is it does something to a child mentally. He was dealing with trauma and it was overwhelming for a seven-year-old to endure what he was up against in that situation. Spring Creek Towers. The building in which Patrick and Jaylene were staying in at 130 Vandalia Avenue was a high-rise building in the Starrett City area in Brooklyn. The community, Spring Creek Towers, had 46 buildings that housed thousands of residents. The location of the housing project is situated on busy streets with a playground nearby, and a few of the apartment buildings sit across from a shopping center with bus stops surrounding the area. The buildings had several walkways where someone could easily just go and be out of sight, especially at the hour Patrick went missing. Whether Patrick left on his own or someone had a hand in it in his vicinity, it would not have been difficult to move in and out without being seen. It's also not clear if there were surveillance cameras on the exterior and interior of the building. Exploring the runaway theory. I've noticed that the court documents state specifically that he ran away from his foster home. Other verified sources also conclude that he ran away from the lobby. This is an interesting mention because either law enforcement has information that makes them believe he ran away, or they have camera footage of him alone in the building, leading to the lobby and out of the doors and into the street alone, which they lose sight of him and why we are here 13 years into this mystery. It is highly likely that Patrick ran away on his own. This is not surprising since he made threats multiple times to run away and expressed his disdain for being in foster care apart from his mother. Family members and those close to Patrick said that he is street smart and would be able to find his way home to Stanton Island to get to his mother, knew his address and phone number. As we know, a seven-year-old is still a seven-year-old, no matter how street smart they are or they may be especially at the hour he was alleged to be in the freezing January weather. Patrick made it clear that he wanted to go home. We know that. Could there be a possibility that he took one opportunity and left the moment Labrada turned her head? Yes. Could it be that he left with hopes of somehow getting home? Absolutely. It's possible, but it's only speculation based on factual recounts. It was New York. Dark. And in January. There were freezing temperatures that were not fit for a child. Patrick had on blue jeans, a red t-shirt, and black Jordan sneakers with no coat. He would not have been able to handle the weather on his own or make it very far. We have to keep in mind that the reason he didn't have a coat is because he was supposed to just walk with Labrada to the trash chute in the building and then return back to the apartment unit. On January 22nd, it was a sunny day. The temperature reached a high of 43 degrees and a low of 33 degrees Fahrenheit. At around 9 p.m., the time when Patrick went missing, it was a freezing 35 degrees outside. This weather would be unbearable for a child without the proper clothing on. If he did leave on his own, he would not have gotten very far due to his lack of attire. It was 2010. They had cameras. 
The cameras from 2010 differ from the cameras today, but there most likely was surveillance in the lobby or in the area that he may have left out of and what investigators seemingly believe. Just from reading the articles on his last moments on record, it appears that NYPD is confident that he actually left out of the building himself. This could mean a few things. One, they have valid proof that he did leave out of the building on his own, and no one else was in sight making them believe that he ran. Or, a witness saw him leave out of the lobby. Another thing, surveillance footage that clearly illustrates his departure from the building. And lastly, they could be looking at the context of Patrick's history of saying that he wanted to leave and made attempts to do so. Patrick would not have known that Labrada was going to take the trash out at 9 p.m. or around that time. He also wouldn't know that she would turn her head as a result of her being distracted. This could not have been a planned runaway. I mean, what seven-year-old plans a runaway in for this long? This is why I don't believe he was exactly abducted from the building, simply because if Labrada was with him and she turned her head for that split second, this abduction would have had to happen within seconds and silent, with no noise to bring any attention. His scent traced. Someone claimed they saw a child fitting Patrick's description on the 16th floor around the time he was said to have gone missing. This sighting was never confirmed, but it is something to note. When I hear witness statements like this, I wonder what has already been shared to the witness before they gave their account. Did the neighbor come forward or did the neighbor share this information on their own? You have to think, what reason he would be five floors up after running away from Labrada? I thought about this, and it could be that he purposefully went up there just to get away from her in panic. Keep in mind that this is a seven-year-old. When you think about it from a seven-year-old's perspective, the moment was intense because he just ran off from his guardian. What he has been trying to do, he finally done it. And now he is pretty much on his own to lead himself to his destination. But, as we now know, into the unknown. Then, you have to explore the possibility of something could have happened up there on the 16th floor. Which I doubt because his scent was traced out of the building and from the recounts from the investigator. It seems as if there was some evidence that suggests that Patrick left out of the building on his own. We just don't know what exactly that evidence was. Law enforcement responded 30 minutes after he was reported missing by Labrada. This time allotment allows ample time for something to occur. You look at the possibility of him getting on an elevator that was going up when he wanted to go down to exit the building. How many times have you gotten on an elevator that you were supposed to go down on, but ended up going up by mistake? Then when you got to that floor, you just stayed on and pushed the elevator down. I know there has been countless times that this has happened to me. If he had intent to run away, he most likely was nervous and had a fear that he would get caught to get put back into foster care apart from his mother. As far as I know, Patrick was not that familiar with Brooklyn. He was from Staten Island, which is a 45 to 55 minute drive and a nearly two hour bus ride. Because his scent was traced to a bus stop on the corner where the building sat or in the vicinity, if he boarded a bus, he would have had to pay a fare. If he didn't and was let on the bus, that would mean the bus driver at least had to see him to acknowledge him to allow him on the bus without paying. Or he somehow snuck on the bus, which I think is least likely. If the bus driver saw him and laid eyes on Patrick, then this would correlate with him possibly riding the bus. 
There really is no public evidence as of yet to support that he boarded the bus or any bus, nor any public witness accounts, only his scent just stopping there. I conducted some research on the bus routes. As some of you may know, or may not, New York buses are 24-7. They consistently run. But after midnight, some of the routes operate less frequently. A child as young as Patrick may not have raised a red flag because it's not uncommon for children to ride public transportation, especially in larger metropolitan areas like New York. He was four foot eight, according to his missing person flyer. So he was pretty tall for his age of seven, which again, may not raise a red flag. As for the bus routes, there were several buses that picked up along that route. The buses were B82 to Coney Island, B83 to Broadway Junction, BM2 to Downtown, and BM5 to Midtown. While I was looking at the bus stops in the vicinity, I found something odd. When I referenced Google Maps to view the street view of the street Patrick may have at some point been on, or around the time he disappeared, I noticed in 2011, there was no Pennsylvania and Vandalia Avenue bus stop on the street side of his building, only on the opposing side of the street. Commonly, bus stops are designed in pairs. It is common, but there are some instances where they're not in pairs. What I mean is, if there's a bus stop on the right side of the street, there typically would be another on the left side. When I transitioned to the date to 2011, this did not show that in Google Maps, which is an accurate source. In 2019, that is when I first see the bus stop appear on the street side of his building, as if it were new and did not exist prior to 2019. Now, with law enforcement, we don't have confirmation on if the canine dogs trace his scent to the Pennsylvania and Vandalia Avenue bus stop on the opposite side of the street which meant he had to cross an intersection. If Patrick didn't board or go near that bus stop, then there's another bus stop that is a seven-minute walk to the Pennsylvania and Schroeder's Avenue bus stop that sits directly across from a shopping center. I found this odd and thought I would mention it. Patrick boarding a bus at that hour without a coat should have caught the attention to someone. It's not clear if the bus that he got on, if he even boarded a bus, had any interior cameras but several bus drivers were interviewed. If it did have cameras, this footage is being held close to the investigation, which makes sense because it would pose a strong lead with the possibility of leading to the person or persons involved or someone who may have had information. There's a chance Patrick boarded the bus, simply got lost, asked for help, and something happened. It was dark, cold, and he was assumingly alone. He could have panicked once he realized what just occurred. What are the odds that a bus is right there as soon as he arrives to the stop? He boards, then gets driven away on that route. You also have to consider that maybe Patrick did not get on a bus and maybe was driven away by a car. You also have to look at a car being there since cars are often parked alongside of the street, except where the bus briefly pulls up. It would be a perfect opportunity that just fell into someone's hands a random abduction from in or near the building, though not completely off the table. I do believe this is least likely because it all goes back to who would have known Patrick and Labrada would be taking a short walk to the trash incinerator, assuming it was located on their floor. Then, you have to examine this lead, Patrick being taken out of the country. The Puerto Rico Connection Private investigator 
James Osgood of Omnipresent Investigations, received a tip that Patrick was taken to Puerto Rico. This ignited hope that he may still be alive. And investigators actually do still think he may be alive out there, somewhere. This lead is not something just birthed out of hope, but there was a strong lead that led them to believe he was taken out of the country. I believe this lead was reported by someone that had proven reason or knowledge of this ideology. This idea that Patrick could have been taken to Puerto Rico aligns with the possibility that he was taken by a family member or a friend of the family who has connections to Puerto Rico. It makes sense, but how could this have been orchestrated? From what has been recounted, it seems as if Patrick ran off on his own. If this did occur with a family member kidnapping Patrick, why? Why didn't they get both children instead of only Patrick? Patrick was the most vocal in wanting to leave. Both Jaylene and Patrick were only in foster care for 24 days. While they were in foster care, Jennifer and Patrick were actively involved in attending court hearings to request kinship placement. If a family member is involved, it may be someone that is not in the immediate family, but close enough to know about the case and to gain Patrick's trust. Your next question may be, why didn't Patrick take Jaylene with him? Again, this is a seven-year-old. He had his heart set on leaving and going back home. He seemed to have been in a fight or flight mode and have been for the past few weeks he was in foster care. He saw Labrada as an opportunity when she turned her head and he just took that opportunity and left on his own, if that were the case. Because Labrada was a foster mother, I'm sure her surrounding neighbors knew she was fostering children since there would be a constant rotation of children in and out of her home. Knowing this information lets neighbors know that she was in possession of multiple children at any time. Perhaps they heard about the outburst that Patrick would have. She also could not speak much, if any, English, which could have also made her vulnerable to things around her and possibly a target. If Patrick was taken to Puerto Rico, why? A mother calls CPS to seek help for herself so she can be a better mother to her children. Then one goes missing. It may possibly be in Puerto Rico. How does this happen? A secret cell phone. Just a thought. I know this may be far left, but it came across my mind. Could someone have given Patrick a cell phone in secret? He was having a tough time in foster care. The visits were supervised, but did someone give him a phone to keep in contact? I get it. I may be leaning too far into the case but I want to explore this ideology just for a minute. Would Patrick have been able to hide a cell phone as a seven-year-old? When a child runs away, sometimes they are running to something. We can assume that he was running to his mother, but did he take a trusting in someone who said they would help? Whether it was a family member or someone who knew a family member, was someone asked to keep tabs on the children while in foster care, like show up in the vicinity to see them on their way to school from a distance? If Patrick did see a familiar face at some point in crossing while in foster care and communicated his understandable, desperate desire to go home, would he have been able to console himself and keep the secret? It's just something to think about. The finger doesn't point that way. Labrada was cleared early into the investigation. It's not public knowledge why she was cleared, but I can only imagine that she had to be investigated because of the circumstance, as a collective. Patrick was not easy to parent at the time due to his behaviors. He had some behavioral issues, understandably, because he wanted to be with his mother. 
This will make you think that she may have involvement. You would think NYPD would direct their attention to the foster mother, but she was cleared, and there had to be good enough reasoning behind it. It could be that they may have seen her looking for Patrick on surveillance, or it could be her story checked out from a witness account and the phone call. Now, another element to this that I've already mentioned is if law enforcement actually seen Patrick leaving the building in a posture that appeared he was running away. This could corroborate with Labrada's story, putting her in the clear. I also thought about the phone call. Who called her? Has this person been cleared? How long did the conversation last? Did this person know what was going on in the household? Did this person call Labrada at any other time during the day? What was the location of the person when they made the call? These are just some questions that I have, which, you know, my own reasoning for. Assumingly, everything checked out and there was no connection. The last day. You know, I wonder how Patrick's last day of school was. What did he do? What did he eat? How was he in school? What was his behavior like? Did he share his plans with other children? We know children talk. Did he even attend school that day? Did he meet someone during or after school? Did he ever confide in someone inside or out of school? What was his route to and from school? Did he take public transportation or did he get taken to school by Labrada? I haven't seen anyone discuss this or even bring up these questions. There may be something there, or nothing at all. When analyzing cases, I appreciate the facts, the intricate details that may or may not hold any weight. It helps set the scene and understand the last moments on record more clearly in case there is something there. Very valid questions. Either this was a perfectly orchestrated abduction, a family member is hiding him, or Patrick ran away, which... Again, does not mean he is safe now. When you explore the possibility that a family member could be hiding him, you have to ask yourself, why Patrick and not Jaylene? Jennifer and Patrick Sr. were both fighting hard to regain custody of the children. I doubt they would want to disrupt that by potentially prolonging or completely legally evoking access to their children. Another question, where was the trash chute located? Was it located on their floor? Which it typically is, but we don't have clarification on the actual trash chute location and how far was it from her actual apartment unit, if it was even on her floor. What we also don't know is if Jaylene was supposed to go with them to the trash chute or stay in the apartment for the brief moment they would be gone. Another thing we don't know is who else was in the home, if there was anyone else there. Labrada probably took Patrick with her towards the trash chute because she probably felt that she needed to keep an eye on him. He was experiencing behavior issues, and the last thing you would want to do is leave a child alone who can't be left alone. Patrick Alfred Sr. shot. Two years after Patrick went missing, his father, Patrick Sr., was shot in the head in a Brooklyn apartment on the 1100 block of Blake Avenue sometime during the afternoon. The shooting, at the time, was being investigated, but it's not clear if anyone was ever arrested for the shooting. Patrick Sr. thankfully survived the shooting and was sadly left paralyzed. 
Patrick Sr. was active in the search for his son through social media and passing out flyers in his community, just as Jennifer. His lawyers alluded to the shooters possibly thinking he had reward money on his person with an attempt to rob him and retrieve his funds. Patrick Sr. did not have any reward money on him. Police had wondered if the shooting of Patrick's father had anything to do with his disappearance, but they were unable to make a connection. The legal case. Once Jennifer was released from jail regarding the disappearance of Patrick, later that year in 2010, she and Patrick Sr. filed a legal case against the city, Labrada Moran, and ACS for failing to protect her son. In 2018, she ended up receiving $6 million from the city and had it put into a trust to support the case of searching for Patrick. My opinion. When I first heard about Patrick's case, I thought instantly that something is missing. I looked into the case, then left it alone to revisit it later because there just weren't a lot of details surrounding his disappearance. And I was working on several other analyses that I had to cover. Recently, I was reviewing cases that involve missing children. I wanted to focus on children since we're in the back-to-school season and children are outside more, walking to school, walking home, and catching their buses. This is a time where things can happen. Children are approached, which makes them vulnerable. Well, I came across Patrick's case again, and this time I had to cover it, except this time I wanted to look further into what has been presented, which was not much. I read more into the facts of the case, watched a 10-minute video segment covering his case, the court documents regarding the custody, and I still felt something was missing. I want to also mention that I had to dig deep to find information on Patrick. His case did not receive enough coverage as it should have received. If you were to do a search on Patrick, there just simply isn't much information. This just confirms why I even started The Missing Found, due to the lack of coverage for missing person cases in the Black community. Patrick's case is a prime example. When I initially did research on Patrick, I knew Patrick was in foster care for not even a full month. He went missing from his foster home, and he's been missing without a trace for over a decade. I just knew it had to be the foster mom that was involved, you would think. As I started looking into the facts, I felt there may be a different story of what actually happened. We know there was a short gap of time from the moment Labrada opened her apartment door to the time she turned around to answer her phone. What we don't know is what happened after that. I replayed the scene in my mind on how a seven-year-old can just vanish within seconds and no one see anything that we know of. Labrada, in my opinion, was negligent. I understand things happen, but we don't know truly what went on in the home. We don't know if she was patient with Patrick, giving him, you know, being under emotional distress. That information we just aren't privy to. As of today, Patrick is still missing. There has not been any new public developments in the case. Today, Patrick Sr. has full custody of his daughter, Jaylene, as her legal guardian. Jennifer has since relocated to a different state, and both parents are still in search for Patrick. I know some of you are going to blame Patrick's mother. I get it. What I want you to remember is that his mother called for help. She did not have to. She made some mistakes and those mistakes can't be undone. 
She called to seek help with hopes of assurance that her children would be safe in a temporary situation so that she can get help. She wanted to help herself so that she could be a better mother to her children. A drug addiction is not always something that you can just get rid of. Most require specialized assistance and support. Patrick was last seen by his foster mother and sister, Jaylene, in the doorway or hallway on their floor. Reports say that he was last seen in the lobby of the apartment building, which leads me to believe that they have surveillance footage or some form of solid proof of him being there, alone and seemingly in a hurried state leaving the lobby, which makes me believe that Patrick may have left on his own 13 years ago. If this isn't the case, then we are seriously missing some details that can formulate another possibility. That's when it goes dark, and the rest is just speculation and a puzzling mystery. When you look at the facts, you wonder who would have had the most to gain. Here's another one. You can't ignore the fact that Patrick could have made it home somehow. Is that why they believe he's in Puerto Rico? As if someone is hiding him. Would Jennifer jeopardize her regaining custody of her children just to hide only one? Even at Patrick's age today, it would be quite hard to hide a young adult. I do believe Patrick ran. We can guess what he was running to, but we don't know what he ended up running to. Someone knows what happened, and they're harboring a nearly 14-year secret. I do believe there is more to this story. It always is. Until people start talking. Because an investigation is only as good as its witnesses. This case will remain open, unsolved, and extremely cold. At the time of Patrick's disappearance, he was seven years old stood at four foot eight and weighed 65 pounds. Patrick is a male, biracial, African-American and Hispanic, has brown eyes and black hair. Patrick has a medium brown complexion. He also has a scar on his left eyebrow. Patrick was last seen wearing a red t-shirt, blue jeans, and black Air Jordan sneakers. Patrick will be 21 in 2023. If you have any information or leads in the disappearance of Patrick Alfred Jr., his current whereabouts, or any information concerning Patrick, it should be directed to your local FBI office, and I've included the link below in the show notes or description box. Or you can contact the New York City Police Department at one 800 577-8477. There is currently a $13,000 and up to $215,000 reward from Crime Stoppers and NYPD on information leading to the return of Patrick. I want to thank you for your viewership of Patrick's case. His family is still awaiting answers. We know people don't just vanish. Someone has the answers to this nearly 14-year-long mystery. Whether he left on his own or was taken, either way, someone at some point had a hand in this. Hopefully, we don't have to go another year without knowing. As always, please be safe, be vigilant, and always be aware of your surroundings.
May God bless and keep you all. To parents and guardians, I have a prayer from scripture that I encourage you to pray over your children, no matter their age. I pray it over Patrick and every missing child. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 through 12.